0: Welcome back to Between the Lines, Everything Your Medical School Didn't Teach You About Health Equity. We started this podcast as students in white coats for Black lives to hear the experience of marginalized communities that are often ignored in our medical education. I'm Isabella Junta, a second year medical student, and I'm joined again by Chanel Simmons, a fourth year medical student at SUNY Downstate. Last episode, we spoke with Jarell Daniels about his experience as a young person in prison. And this episode, we have Jose Saldana, who will offer a different perspective on the health challenges for older people in prison. Jose Saldana is the director of RAP, Release for Aging People in Prison, an organization that advocates for parole reform for the elderly and compassionate release.
1: Mr. Saldana, thank you for being here. How are you? Oh, pretty good. I just want to say that I don't get to talk to a lot of famous people or people of your <laughs> esteem very often. So it's a pleasure to meet you. I read about your work and about your experience. It's all very inspiring. You're a person who is truly putting in the hard work to help in mass incarceration and expose systems of oppression in this country. And right now you're director of RAP, which is an organization for releasing aging people in prison. It's an amazing organization. So I'll let you tell us about that and how you started working for criminal justice reform.
2: I actually was working toward reforms in the parole system uh, when I was incarcerated. And I was battling with the New York State Parole Board, trying to turn back to my family and my whole community. And the parole commissioners were very biased. They had already predetermined uh, not to release me. And these things, the manner in which they were conducting hearings were, in my opinion, illegal. And it deprived men and women in New York State of a meaningful opportunity to be measured by who they are today, as opposed to who they were when the crime was committed, in my case, decades ago.
1: And then how'd you get to be a director at RAP?
2: Unfortunately, you know, well, first, you know, RAP, I'm sure you know that RAP was founded by a collective of formerly incarcerated people, with the vision of ending mass incarceration and promoting racial justice to the release of older and aging people in prison. The idea was that older people, for the most part, had languished in prison for three and four decades. And during that period, they had achieved extraordinary accomplishments. And statistically, I all stand this they're the least likely to ever commit another crime or recidivate, that is, violate the conditions of parole and be sent back to prison. In short, they were safe bet. So let's start this process of ending mass incarceration with those who no one should have a problem with being released. But people had a problem with with those being released because of those people whose language in prison, for the most part, were convicted of of violent crimes. And I was appearing before my parole boards you know, trying to address these issues that the parole commissioners were predominantly from law enforcement. Upstate New York could not relate to the people who they were actually uh, measuring whether they are suitable now to return back to their families and communities. And because of their law enforcement background, they had a tendency to either retry the case, because some of them were former prosecutors, or reinvestigate the case and interject their own gut feelings as to what happened or didn't happen, irrespective of what the record says. So this was just denying people a fair hearing. And as I was battling with them, rap was being formed by these three formerly incarcerated persons, one who I had communications with. I didn't know him personally, but I knew of a lot of people who knew him, and I started to communicate with him. And when I was released, I was released because RAP actually exposed these very same commissioners that we was having problems with. The entire board was actually made up of commissioners who could not be favorable, with very few exceptions. But they highlighted five of these commissioners from law enforcement backgrounds, and they used actual parole hearings to actually prove their case to how unfair these commissioners had been throughout their appointment as commissioners, and they presented this evidence to the governor. And the governor, to his credit, you know, I don't give him too much credit, but to his credit on this particular point here, he did not reappoint them. At his, this is customarily done. You get six years appointment as commissioner, you get reappointed for another six years, so they dominate. This is how they dominate the state role board. He didn't reappoint them, and instead he appointed six new commissioners from a diversified background, which is all we was asking for. And one of these newly appointed commissioners was the commissioner who heard my case when I appeared before the parole board. And unlike other commissioners, who they focused entirely on the crime that I committed in 1979, this commissioner asked me just one question about that crime. And then her next statement was, now let's talk about what you've been doing the last 38 years. And based on 40 minutes of conversation of what I've been doing the last 38 years of incarceration, She made the decision to release me. So RAP made this possible. RAP was instrumental in this happening in my life. So, uh, you know, after a couple of weeks or so of, you know, connecting with my grandkids and kids and family, my wife, I decided that I had a responsibility to the men I left behind. And I knocked on RAP's door and I reported for duty.
1: Great. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, because a lot of people do need that help. I read about, you know, the organization pushing for legislation regarding parole and policies. Could you tell us about that legislation and what initiatives your organization is currently advocating for and what changes they, they will bring about?
2: Well, the the first changes that RAP did was change the composition of the New York State parole board. And we still have have punitive minor commissioners, but they don't dominate to the point that they did, you know, let's say maybe six, seven years ago. So the diversified composition that RAP was responsible for uh, more people are being released. Not as many as we want, but more people are being released. So we want uh, a fully staffed Pro of 19 commissioners, all of them, every single commissioner must believe that human beings can transform their lives. They do not stay stuck in that one moment where the crime was committed. And we advocate for two bills that would be a, a big first step board addressing the legacy of racism in the legal system, and we hope will at least start the process of ending mass incarceration. This bill is the elder parole bill, which provides that if a person has reached 55 years old and has served 15 years, he or she will be entitled to a parole review, just a review to determine whether the person should be released. And the reason why this bill is important is because it does not exclude anybody from parole justice based on the crime or the length of sentence, and it would immediately impact men who have already been in prison for close to four decades or even longer than four decades. Those are the ones that would be immediately, and they're they're closer to 70 years old than 55. But this bill, if it's passed, it will correct some of the injustices of mass incarceration because some of these men have languished in prison since the 70s, and it would ensure that another generation will not have to suffer the same the same injustice. And and the Fair and Timely Parole Act, which is really gives meaning to the Elder Parole Bill, because when they appear before the parole board, the parole board then are required to determine whether the person should be returned back to the community based on who he or she is today. If there's a risk public safety, which they often evaluate, that risk be a current risk, and it must be a risk of a nature that it cannot be mitigated by a pro So the crime committed decades ago is not current. So they, that could not be used as a basis to, to say that a person is a risk of public safety. And
1: that definitely goes along with medical decarceration and a lot of the decarceration efforts. And I want to get to that a little bit in a second but I listened to some of your talks. You're a great historian. And I wanted just to ask, could you provide some context about the history of mass incarceration and incarcerated people's organizing efforts? The only thing I know about is the Attica uprising that happened in the 70s. That was a response to the growing frustrations with the substandard conditions in America's prisons. So I wonder what has changed since then. Could you tell us about that history?
2: Yes, a lot of people mistakenly think that mass incarceration started with the war on drugs. You know, we know the war on drugs was actually a war on people of color. But mass incarceration started long before then the war on drugs, we talk about the nineties. Mass incarceration is the final solution to the movements for racial and social justice. You know, we're talking in the 60s, in the early 70s, and even back before the 60s, there was movements promoting racial justice in our society, social justice in our society, addressing the marginalization of communities of colors. And the leaders of this movement were very dynamic people. And they actually had Communities all over the country listening to their voices. So mass incarceration started by trying to isolate these leaders, and in some cases, assassinating them. Whether it was a direct orders from the FBI, or whether the local police departments took it upon themselves to assassinate these leaders in the Black Panther Party, you know, the Brown Berets party of, uh, of Chicanos, the Young Lords party, which I was a, a member of. And what they did is they tried to neutralize the support for social and racial injustice. They tried to neutralize this support by criminalizing the communities that were supporting these movements. And this is the origins of mass incarceration. This is why it was important for the United States government and governments across states of the United States to participate in this effort to neutralize leadership And and neutralize support for these movements, and this is why we find we see the prison population skyrocket from New York from nine to ten thousand at a one point to seventy-two thousand, and across the country from just you know barely a hundred thousand to two and a half million across the country, and the vast majority of these people that were incarcerated are people of colors, the indigenous people what they call the American Indian Movement, was the subject of this racist scheme of mass incarceration. They were the subject of COINTEL and the subject of assassinations and imprisonment for life. A lot of these life sentences were the result of the policies of mass incarceration. Even life without parole, the 100 years to life, just imprisoning people for the duration of their life as an example so no one else would follow them, and at one point, Edgar Hoover actually said that there must never be another Malcolm X.
1: Yeah, wow, well, that's powerful. As you know, I'm a medical student. I have two of my colleagues here with me, and we wanted to have this discussion because we wanted to learn more about healthcare in correctional settings, and I believe you call it the crisis of healthcare in prison. That's a good way to describe it. I think it's a very important issue because many of the patients we encounter have been incarcerated or have a close family member who who has been incarcerated. Medical school doesn't teach us how to confront those real-world problems our patients face. You were in prison for quite some time. What were some of your experiences with seeking health care in prison?
2: Well, uh, let me first say that in the last 10 years, over a 1,000 men and women have died in in New York State prisons. 700 of those are people of color, Black and Latinx people, Asian people. And that shouldn't be a surprise to nobody, That because we we disproportionately represent the prison population. What may be surprising is that of that 700, the average age at death was 58 years old. And some of the men I've known, and I've known them for years, in fact, two of my friends in 2010, you know, they were my mentors, one was 58 years old, the other one was 59 years old. And every time I would hear that someone died at such an early age, it would always be cardiac arrest. You know, and so I started becoming involved from the very beginning. I was involved in super conscious of my health, you know, because I already knew those who came before me have already schooled me that if you don't take care of your health, no one else will. So we come into prison. This is the reality. Uh, COVID-19 did not expose the substandard he- or the disparity of health care in our communities. It always existed. Now everybody knows. But we're, we're disproportionately represented when it comes to their fatalities, whether outside or inside a prison. So we come in already having inherited substandard health care. Now we come to a super substandard health care system. And the thing about prison, is that prisons are designed to punish. They're not designed to heal. They're not designed to save lives. Prisons are designed to punish. So in a simple trip to triage, or the sick call process, what we call when you have, when something you feel something is wrong, I mean, doctors will tell you, if you feel pain, that's a sign that something is wrong. So you feel something is wrong with you, you go to, to a nurse a triage nurse, and you try to explain to this triage nurse what you're going through, what your body's trying to tell you. And over you is a correction officer, or two, that interferes with that initial process of being seen on a medical interview. So you already automatically see that your medical treatment is going to be interfered by someone who only thinks about security. And this is the very beginning where you realize that and it happens over and over again. You know, you could have had a bad fall on a football field on a basketball court. And, and you go there, and no matter how much you complain that, you know, you think this is broken, you can't put pressure on it. You're given an ace bandage. It's entitled Tylenol, And this is the routine. This is the, the, the how, how they deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm. My next question was going to be, why do you think the quality of care is so poor, but you know you just just made a great point that even in the first encounter you're with there with a correctional officer and that breaks down the trust that we as medical students are taught that we have to do. We have to build rapport with the patient. You know, do you know about HIPAA laws and how, you know, doctors are bound by the HIPAA privacy? Is that even a, does that even apply?
2: It, it don't exist. This is not an indictment against all pe- medical people. Of course, the, the majority of them are from the local area. They have their husbands, brothers, uncles, and everybody else is working in the, in the prison. So they're not going to go against the culture of the prison. But every now and then you have a nurse that comes in and I've I've seen it, you know. I I heard the nurse say, "Listen, officer, can you step out the room so I can have a private conversation with this man?" And he says, "No, I'm not stepping out the room. It's a dangerous guy here." You know, they don't care about HIPAA. And this is the culture. The culture is not to heal. The culture is to punish, and they don't care whether we live or die. And some nurses are genuinely into their profession, but over time the culture just wears them down. Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know if you have experience in different like correctional settings, but what are some differences in the healthcare that you've seen across the institutions, say jail versus prison and you know state versus federal level?
2: I didn't have a lot of personal experiences because when I first went to a, a, a federal, I went to a federal prison, then I went to the state prison. When I first went to a federal prison after I was convicted in 1980, I ran into someone who knew someone that I, I knew, and you know he schooled me and he told me, he gave me this advice. He said, he asked me if I had a medical dictionary. And I said, no, I said, get one. He said, get a Stuart's medical dictionary. And he said, and read it. Every time you have some time, read it, because whenever you have some symptoms, read about these symptoms and what they can possibly be, and take care of your health. And I did that. It helped me to prevent myself from Actually, getting sick. I try to exercise regular. I try to eat as best as I can. I try to not indulge in health risk activities and all that. But even then, as you get older, you know you're going to feel some ailments. You're going to feel your body just breaking down. So I will go down. I used to work out a lot. I used to run a lot. I will go down. I had knee problems. I had elbow problems from lifting weights. And I will go down and, and ask, you know, listen, what, what's going on here? I think I got arthritis. No, you don't have arthritis. You're too young for arthritis. Now I know I'm feeling a lot of pain in my elbows. You know, and that's frustrating. You know, and then when I started telling about what the medical dictionary says these conditions are, you know, the correction officer gets involved and says, you, you're a doctor. You trust, If you're a doctor, you can treat yourself. There. You know, they started to try to intimidate the nurse into not, you know, taking my, my, my condition serious. And that's just what everybody else. You know, some, most people won't even go to the nurse. They would just handle it. And we come in not in the best of health, first of all. So now, whatever ailments we have, if we have high blood pressure, if we have diabetes, for the most part, it will get worse before they start actually addressing this issue. And sometimes it leads to even worse worse conditions than just diabetes or high blood pressure. Because by the time they actually take it serious, you're in a bad state.
1: Yeah. So that is very important because there's longer sentences now because of what you were just mentioning, the drug laws and stuff. So what are some of the challenges of people with longer sentences and maintaining their health and their chronic conditions and managing their chronic conditions? They have a,
2: well, this is a recent development in New York State prison systems that, you know, everybody gets the same meal. You know, everybody gets the same t- child, we call it. Everybody goes the child and gets the same thing. Then they started changing it they started calling an alternative menu. And then everybody that has a problem, if you have a, a high blood pressure, if you have a thyroid condition, if you have whatever condition you may have, you get an alternative. Everybody has an alternative. So that means that you have a, a medical menu for every condition, a one-size-fits-all medical menu. This is the, the, the major problem that they do not treat ailments differently. They call themselves self-treating all ailments in the same way. If you complain about a heart condition and you want to eat better, you go on the same menu that everybody else. So this saves money. The thing is that the medical is the most expensive bill in the Department of Correction because so many people are sick. I was in prison during the HIV crisis and I've seen the response. And this is an example that they were actually putting people in isolation who had the appearance of being gay because they identified gay men as being carriers of the HIV virus. So not, no medical diagnosis. And then those who had symptoms, who were going trying to get treatment, were also isolated in a punitive manner. And this, this is the same way they dealt with every other health crisis that was going on in the state prison system that I was in the hepatitis C crisis, they did the same thing. And people actually had to go to court, get a judge to order treatment because they just wasn't gonna do it. It was too expensive. and They just wasn't willing to foot that bill.
1: Yeah, you're mentioning the economic impact of prison healthcare. And I know the privatization of prison healthcare has generated a lot of money. I saw somewhere it was $7.4 billion per year. Do you think it matters if healthcare is run by the state or run by private companies?
2: If the state runs it, their major concern is security. They're not concerned with health care. This is why there is no what we call controlled substance medication being given to people in prison. In New York State, they stop all that. Anything that has a controlled substance, it doesn't matter what your condition is. You're not getting it. You no, know, there's certain medication that they will not give you either based on their notion of security or because the medication is too expensive. So now if you have a private prison whose concern is perhaps more so in making money than security, so you have a double-edged sword now, you have the primary focus of making money off you and then security as opposed to just security being a state prison. They're both bad, but one is just worse than the other.
1: So I know injuries are things that, you know, require immediate attention. In your experience, what would it look like for a person who was incarcerated to receive care for an acute health concern, say after getting into a fight? Could you tell me how it would look like in the best case scenario or the worst case scenario? Well,
2: I've seen, i actually seen cases where a person was actually bleeding to death mm-hmm. before the correction officers actually, you know, called the nurses to come, or the nurses took their time coming. People actually bled to death. They do not take things like that serious. They actually act like it's a it's a sporting game for them, you know. And this is the brutality of the system. You know, I used to work for the inmate grievance program, and I asked a nurse one day where a guy bled to death. So I said, you know, y'all could have saved that guy's life. And this is one of the better nurses. She told me that they were they are not equipped. She said there's. If they would have brought it into the infirmary in time, there was no one there to stop that bleeding because the artery in the leg, the back of the leg was severe and blood was just gushing out like a water fountain. She said that the nurses on duty were not trained to stop that type of bleeding, put the clamps on the veins or whatever they had to do. She said they just weren't trained.
1: What kind of qualifications do the medical staff need to have? Do you know about
2: I, I, I don't know, but it, it seems to me that if you can't get a job anyplace else in the medical profession, if you, you know, have problems in a hospital whether it's public or private, you can always get one in a prison hospital. And this is why they do not last long. The good nurses, the good doctors, who take the time out, you know. And I tell you, when I was released from prison after 38 years, the first thing I did was got a complete physical examination, and I learned what a physical was then. I had no idea what a physical really was because in prison I was getting a physical every five years. Now, for the first time in my I said, wow, this is an all-day affair for real. You know, it was so complete. You know, I was baffled by the completeness and thorough and the fact of how the doctor was so involved in explaining what what he was doing. That never happened before. And not for me or for anybody else to really. Get a physical and felt man. If I if I get a clean bill of health here, I'm confident that it really is a clean bill of health.
1: So you said when you first got out, you went to get a full physical. What other services were available to you in transitioning out of prison?
2: Well, you know, the, in transitioning, uh, there was very little available. First, I'm in a masculine security prison. The, the masculine security prison is not completely concerned with reentry. Not concerned with anti services. You know, you get your 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 prison ID, you go to the motor vehicle, get a state ID, you get your birth certificate, you get your social security card, and that's it. The rest is up to you. You know, so you everything help? that I've gotten, no, I mean, I you know, I have family, so I was fortunate. You know, some men and women do not have the support of family. And another thing that is a grave concern is mental health. I've worked in mental health units in prisons. Uh, I was an escort for the blind. And I've seen it's total disregard. You, know, you talk about you know, mental health services. And these, and these are the prisons that are supposed to specialize in mental health services. Mental health services is just neglect, disregarding the human being, neglecting that he exists, neglecting that he needs mental health services. They just really don't care enough to actually treat people. And I've seen the programs that they're supposed to have developed to men. I've watched. It doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. And they have fun with them. That's the the Humanity is that they have fun with them. You know, just looking at them acting up or, or, or doing whatever they do and making best of them this is a system that is that is bent on cruelty to all the human beings and this is just what it is
1: yeah it's surprising because in brooklyn where the medical school i go to and my colleagues go to it's in a very underserved part of brooklyn so a lot of the what you're describing i've seen you know that kind of taking of humanity to the patient so it's interesting to see the, that similarity I wanted to go back a little bit just to the medical, because you brought it up and I should have asked you then about the compassionate release um, and medical decarceration. The process for qualifying for compassionate release, I know is extremely complicated. How is the decision made to release someone serving a long sentence and what role does health status play in determining whether or not someone is granted release? In
2: New York, there is no compassionate release. They have what is called medical release. And that's, that's totally different So we're dealing with something that is supposed to be based primarily on a medical decision, where this person cannot receive the medical care in prison that he or she needs. He should receive it, but there are exemptions, there are exclusions from this medical release. If a person was convicted of a particular crime that is actually cited in in the law, then this person is not even qualified for medical release. And the process is so long that people actually die waiting for a decision to be rendered whether they should receive medical release or not. Compassionate release, and this is why we are asking the governor Cuomo to intervene, because clemency would be compassionate release to those who are elderly with very and a lot of them I know have very serious medical conditions. They are in their 70s and mid 70s. If they are infected, the likelihood of them uh, surviving a COVID infection is very slim. So we are asking the governors to intervene and grant these people compassionate release in the form of a clemency. They would would at least be free of the terror because men and women right now are actually living in terror that they will get infected and knowing that they may not survive.
1: I also read that out of all the COVID cases in prison, black people are still overrepresented and dying at higher rates than their white counterparts. Why do you think that is? And how has this pandemic impacted so criminal justice reform?
2: Because prisons are a reflection of society. If if mm-hmm. we are disproportionately represented by the fatalities of the COVID in our society, especially in the communities that are that are poor, the poorest communities of the state then that will be reflected in prison. Because prisons, the medical (laughs) treatment that we get in prison is worse than the poor quality of medical care that we know we are provided with in society. So if we address one, then we are addressing the other. We have to uproot the legacy of racism because it all boils down to race. If 75% of prisoners were white, we won't have this disparity. We won't be questioning whether the governor of Comroe should release more people. He will, but you know, we're talking about you know black and brown people who, for the most part, they have already been criminalized since they were kids, and they will maintain that label of dangerousness for their entire life until they go to the grave.
1: I want to get your recommendations because we're all future doctors here. What are your recommendations for physicians caring for someone who is formerly incarcerated? How can a health care provider or a doctor start the conversation and build rapport with someone who has been formerly incarcerated?
2: I think the doctors should, and this is the same thing with, with an attorney, they should build trust through their professional ethics. And I, I've had a doctor that was a very good doctor. She only lasted a couple of years. You know, she would always ask the CEO to leave the room, and when he doesn't leave, she will stop the interview and go get his supervisor to tell, listen, this guy here has a right to medical privacy. And I am asking you to respect this right and my right to be able to converse with him personally without being uh, someone hearing the conversation and seeing what I'm doing. You know, to do that, you have to be aggressive and respecting the rights of your patient. You just can't say, OK, yes, I tried, but you know he won't leave. Once a doctor does something like this, it, the word will go around that this is a real doctor. We can now go see this doctor. Don't be afraid of the correction officer intervening. The doctor will respect and fight for your rights. And this goes a long way, and more people then will be reporting the ailments that, that they are suffering in silence for the most part.
1: How do we improve health care for people who were formerly incarcerated in, in the health care provided in prisons? Are there specific legislation, policies, or actions in New York City or state that health care workers should be aware of?
2: I don't know if there's any need for legislation because legislation takes so long. To I think the governor, he had a stroke of a pen just like he, he did it for his own selfless interest. He pardoned, gave every incarcerated person that was parole. not everyone, but there are a few exceptions that he didn't do it to. But for the most part, most people who have been released on parole, he gave them a limited pardon just to restore their voting rights. So he could do this with the stroke of a pen. He could do that, that everybody being released should be entitled to first Medicaid, Medicare for someone who is elderly, and that this person must be treated within seventy-two hours, must be seen by a primary care physician, you know, within a certain amount of period, so that you know whatever ailments he had will be immediately treated upon his release.
1: Yeah, when I was talking to Jarrell Daniels last week, who um, referred me to the organization about his experience in prison, he said it would be a good thing if you know the parole officers can give them a heads up when their Medicaid insurance you know, expires and, you know, that can help with that kind of continuity of care. But those are great recommendations. You mentioned the good doctors in prison don't last. Why do you think they don't last?
2: I think the good doctors don't want to compromise their integrity. Doctors, you know, when an MRI is needed, they can't order it without, you know, authority from higher up. And they're, the, they're supposed to be our primary care physician, but they can't order it unless some bureaucrat in Albany approves it. And sometimes they'll approve it and some bureaucrat in Albany will disapprove it when the, the doctor who is treating you sees the clear need for it. And, and they get frustrated by just a CO intervening, you know, peeping in, you know, once, you know, when you're being physically examined and the doctor closes that curtain, there's a reason for that. She doesn't expect, or he doesn't. doesn't expect, someone else to just open the curtain and just walk in and look around and stay there for a few minutes or for the duration of the interview or, or the examination. I think this frustrates a lot of good doctors, and they don't want to compromise their integrity or they don't want to go up against a system that they feel that they can't they can't win that fight. So
1: from what you witnessed, can you give us a picture of what some of the injustices are for someone who is dying in prison?
2: You know, you have men in regional units, you know, which are terminal units. One person I knew, he was 87. You know, he would appear before the parole board. You know, he had 25 years of life, and he already had like 35 years in. That means he'd been denied repeatedly by the parole board. He had dementia. And this is common, you know, in your 80s, you know, I, I've seen you know, other cognitive impairments. And he did not remember the crime. He just didn't remember the crime. You know, and he would say, you know, this paper saying that I did this, I don't remember. But if you say I did it, okay, I did it. So how do you hold someone there and deny him release in his condition because he fails to take responsibility for the crime? It's medically documented that he had dementia. So how can you do that? You know, what kind of person that makes you to just totally ignore that this person has some kind of cognitive impairment that doesn't allow him to remember what he did 40 years ago, 35 years ago, you know, and then there are men that are dying of cancer, people that were dying of AIDS or other disease, liver diseases, hepatitis related, they, you know, how can you just continue to say that these men are on their deathbed, pose a threat, To public safety. You know, this is the the inhumanity of of this system. You know, and everybody is implemented, everybody is complicit in this. For a parole commissioner to say that this guy doesn't deserve to be released on parole because he fails to take responsibility for the crime he committed that he can't remember.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Saldana, for giving us so much insight and sharing your experience. We really appreciate it. We will definitely keep in touch and continue to work towards a better future, especially for our aging and dying members in prison.
0: Wow, Chanel, thank you for such a great conversation with Jose Saldana. He shared not only the horrors of his experience and of those he knew in prison, but also a lot of context about structural racism and why these problems exist. So what struck you the most, Chanel, from that conversation you had with Mr. Saldana?
1: Yeah, I agree. It was very insightful. It was incredibly jarring to hear the extent of abusive treatment and the lack of value placed on incarcerated people's lives. The fact that there are people who have bled to death in prison and prison workers didn't bat an eye is the definition of deliberate indifference. From that conversation, it became clear to me that The prison culture and the environment facilitates death in part because of how the chronic health conditions are treated. The treatment is the same across the board. There's no differential diagnosis or individualized management plan. What makes any chronic health problem worse is not treating it, not getting the proper care, not getting a balanced diet or preventative care. Untreated chronic disease causes premature death and a poor quality of life. So having a chronic Illness on top of the stress that comes with
0: being incarcerated seems like a death sentence in itself. That's so true. And for me, one of the things that he said that really struck me and really showed how lacking the health care was in prison was when he mentioned getting a medical dictionary. He basically knew he was going to be ignored and was going to receive subpar care, and he had to take it upon himself to. Do the job of the doctor and diagnose himself. Yeah, he basically became
1: his own doctor because healthcare is virtually non-existent. Apparently the doctors who can't get a job anywhere else can get one in prison. And I just wonder why that is. What are the standards or minimum qualifications for someone to be a healthcare provider in prison?
0: So the standards seem to be a lot lower than for the general community. Though doctors trained in primary care specialties like family practice or internal medicine would be the best equipped to provide care needed in a prison, oftentimes it's specialists with a lot less experience with patient interaction. Specialties like surgery or urology then those specialists are often the ones providing care instead. Several of these doctors are not even board certified. So, for those of you who don't know, board certification is a process that requires having completed an eligible residency program, um, doing continued medical education, and passing regular re examinations. And while it's not required to practice medicine, it would be next to impossible to find a job outside of a prison without being board certified. There have also been Several reports of physicians practicing in prisons after having committed serious medical errors or misconduct, even after prison officials are made aware of this history. Like we said last time in Carizon, there weren't even background checks being done. Um, and a lot of times I've heard that doctors are able to sort of just hop from state to state. So after facing disciplinary action in one state, going to get a job in another state, in another prison.
1: And everyone we talked to, my family member, Jose, and Jarrell, they all said the qualifications are so low for these healthcare workers. Even Jarrell said the nurses didn't know, some nurses didn't know how to draw blood. I'm just, yeah, and that's exactly. Scary. And with all of those inadequacies, you can only hope that people in prison have an avenue to file a complaint if and when they receive inadequate care. But we don't know, but we know that's not the case because, as Mr. Saldana said, There's a total disregard of HIPAA laws and patient autonomy in prison. A federal law, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which was enacted in 1996, requires a prisoner to exhaust the corrections agency's grievance system before filing a claim in court alleging negligent care as their case will be dismissed if they have not completed the entire grievance process. This grievance process in many states is extremely complex with very tight deadlines. And if the complaint makes an error or misses a deadline, they can't, they can be disqualified from filing a subsequent lawsuit. This act essentially limits the ability of people to in prison to make complaints about their treatment and perpetuates these poor conditions. I feel like this is almost in response to some of the uprising and the organizing and how a lot of these incarcerated people have been coming forward filing court claims.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of this stereotyped vision that, you know, people who are in prison are filing these frivolous lawsuits when in reality they're obviously facing really terrible conditions. So their complaints are valid. Um, and even if there were frivolous lawsuits, I think this is definitely overdoing it <laughs> in preventing people from actually having any say in the treatment that they encounter in prison. So We talked a lot about why prison healthcare is so poor and have kind of hinted at a few ways to make it better, including replacing private contractors with known instances of neglect with state-run healthcare, increasing the standards and the training needed to work in a prison, uh, reevaluating acts like the Prison Litigation Reform Act that limit a person's ability to make a complaint about their treatment in prison, just to name a few. But how can we, as future physicians, better support our patients after release from prison? So both Jose and Jarrell um, spoke a little bit about what they wanted from their physicians after release. So Jarrell, like we spoke about, mentioned wanting the full body MRI and CT. And Jose mentioned that he really appreciated when his doctor explained each step of the physical exam. And I think Both of them showed how necessary it is to respect the autonomy and take seriously the concerns of patients who have been formerly incarcerated and probably didn't receive that type of care for so long. So, how else do we, as future physicians and physicians, support patients after they have been released from prison or jail? For me, what I took away
1: from all the conversations and lectures is how to be a more informed and competent doctor. And just to reiterate, Michaela summarized it well to reiterate her tips for healthcare providers, asking for consent for each part of the physical exam. This requires rapport and having the more thorough your history is, the more rapport I think you can get with that, you can establish with that patient. Emphasizing confidentiality and independence in front of the criminal justice system. And like um, Jose Saldana's story about how the correctional officers don't give the medical encounter any privacy is exemplifies that the whole patient autonomy is stripped from them. And lastly, reinforce choice and explain all options, offer resources. In order to offer resources, we have to really expand our knowledge of resources that are out there and foster collaboration with community health workers and centers that we can help make this healthcare experience a more continuous experience for people who have been formerly incarcerated. The legislation, um, the RAP organization is really pushing for, and medical decarceration is very important, especially in this time, in this
0: pandemic um and just for context for our listeners Michaela Linder of the Fortune Society gave a lecture to us on how best to support formerly incarcerated individuals um, and she works with the Fortune Society which is an organization that supports reentry after release from incarceration so I just want to say thank you so much to our speakers Jarrell Daniels and Jose Saldana as well as to Michaela Linder um we'd like to thank rap the for- and the Fortune Society for their work and for lending us some speakers for this podcast. We'd also like to let you know that there are more resources on our website if you'd like to learn more um, about these issues. Thank you so much for listening to Between the Lines. Um, I'd like to close by just reading this quote by Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy. He says that we are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace.